This episode of Rolled Up is going to feel a little bit different. It was the first one I recorded, so I'm using a different microphone, and I was still figuring out where I wanted to take the show. Originally, I thought I would talk to 10 founders from all different areas about anything other than e-commerce and marketing and business, but after recording this episode, it really hit home that after 2020, we're all in e-commerce. It doesn't matter if you're the founder of a bottled water company or a men's grooming company helping to fight off scent confusion, or today's guest, Canada's funniest magician, Wes Barker. We talk about the king of cards, the king of handcuffs, and maybe even the king of marketing. I'm talking, of course, about the great Harry Houdini. Like when some people don't know much about Houdini, I'm kind of like, how have you missed it? He, like for like literally a hundred years, he's been like top headline name. I'm so glad we're talking about him. He's currently filming his TV show, Big Trick Energy, which will premiere April 22nd on True TV. So make sure you go watch that. And if you enjoy this episode, you can find Wes's magic and videos on YouTube. You can hear his podcast, Bottom of the Barrel with Chris Ramsey on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening here. And once we can all travel again, hire Wes for your corporate event, your sales kickoff, your team building exercise, whatever it is. Enjoy this mysterious, magical episode of Rolled Up. Uh, well, my name is Wes Barker. I'm a magician, comedian, um, sort of self-proclaimed stunt magician, if that makes any sense to anybody. Uh, yeah, I'm mostly making uh, magic on YouTube right now, and I have a new show coming out on True TV, which should hopefully come out sometime in the spring of 2021. Uh, as you mentioned, you are uh, a very legitimate magician. And I've been going down a bit of a, a magic rabbit hole the past year or so, and I read Houdini's biography, and I just thought it was really fascinating. And shockingly, a lot of my my friends who aren't magicians just haven't read the book or barely barely know who he is. So I thought it would be a lot of fun to to bring you on the show and talk about Houdini and really what what made him great and just sort of what he would look like today. And then uh, right before COVID, I'll let you tell the story, but you were actually at David Copperfield's museum where a lot of his, what would you call it, artifacts? His life. Yeah, his life is more like it. Uh, you picked the right guy, man. Houdini is, is, is the best. I'm so glad we're talking about him. And you say you read his biography, and it's like, yeah, it uh, it depends on um, uh, which one. There's like 500 books have been written about Houdini, like over a dozen mm -hmm. films. You know, there's like he's like the most talked about guy ever, and for good reason. But it's just so incredible why when some people are like, oh yeah, I've never like when some people don't know much about Houdini, I'm kind of like, how have you missed it? He, like for like literally a hundred years, he's been like top headline name. You know, it's crazy. I'm so glad we're talking about him. People might know that he died getting punched in the stomach or that he would be upside down in the water. But when you say 500 books, there could be 500 different books written about him and just how everyone knows him. And I think that that's part of what made him great, because like you said, he was in a bunch of movies. But if you look at the timeline, someone born in the 1800s. It's not like film was really a, a career you could grow up and aspire to be a, a movie star in Hollywood. And I think that that's sort of the first thing that we wanted to talk about was what made him so great. And it's on one hand, it was his adoption of new technologies and willing to go out there and do anything, but also just the dedication to his craft. It's everyone knows that. I mean, you did a, a video on your YouTube channel about picking locks. And I remember you saying you got some flack from it because you weren't doing it the right way or, or something. Whereas Houdini at the, uh, at the other end was before he toured Germany, he apprenticed as a locksmith. 
to go and just make sure that there were no locks that he wouldn't have come across. He was notorious for like over uh, researching things. And, uh, and he was like also the guy that was, uh, you know, you see like people doing escape artist stuff now or whatever. And, and uh, they're kind of like, they learn the techniques maybe, or, or enough of them to kind of do it for a show. But Houdini took it to his whole life. Like he was always the peak of physical fitness and he would study every knot, every lock, apprentice with people. And he would really go above and beyond. And because he would do that in some aspects of, of performing magic, whatever, he could kind of fudge it for other ones and self-proclaim that he had done this. But he was kind of a little bit a notorious embellisher and liar. And especially back then, you couldn't really disprove it as easily. You know what I mean? So some places, uh, some categories of his life and performing career, he was like so researched, the most knowledgeable. And because he was so diligent on those sides, he could kind of extend that to people and kind of BS his way into being like, I'm also the greatest at this. I've studied this forever. And even though that may or may not have been true, but you couldn't really disprove it because he had so much backing him up on certain aspects. And I think that's just really uh, fascinating about what is what made him so great and why we all know about him is because I, I have another word for sort of embellishing and, and storytelling to sell more tickets. It's called marketing. Uh, just really, <laughs> really taking those stories, creating characters. But he did something that gets left out of just about every modern day marketing, which is creating legends. He would do stuff like airbrush everyone else out of a photo. So let's say he was on a boat and there were some icebergs and let's just call it the Titanic. He would airbrush everyone else out of that on the Titanic. So it looks like he's got the whole boat to himself just to establish that, that legend. And I think that now in, in modern times, you, you hit on something really good with a lot of that hard work and that just years of practice and just knowing every possible rope technique and the nuances between little ropes that to you and me, we look at it like, oh yeah, that's just a rope, whereas he can tell you the exact fiber count and if it's good for certain types of, of knots or uh, specific locks, why they're good or not good. When it comes to moving forward today, one of the things that he did really well from the marketing side was he said to always stay in the papers. And if you stay in the papers, you'll always sell out. What are some of the more modern day examples of that, of, of a, a magician doing it really well? The first thing that comes to mind is, is David Blaine floating with, with the balloons of, you don't know how much of that was hard work and how much of it was sort of just scripting of, uh, how much of this is real and how much of this could I do if I just went in the suit because it's been all engineered for this purpose and it's claiming to be hard work, bringing in a lot of the, other YouTubers and I guess influencers, but really just celebrities to kind of be a part of it. David Blaine's the master at that currently. And to a point where he is like, uh, you know, one of the most famous magicians to ever walk the planet. And a lot of his major stunts really don't necessarily involve magic. Uh, some of them at all and some to a lesser degree, mm -hmm. but he doesn't care because it, like Houdini just being making noise, making a big splash, getting a lot of eyes on you is more important than necessarily exactly what it is you're doing. And uh, yeah, he's the best example of it now. And, and I mean, probably no surprise, but like he is such a big fan of Houdini. The first place that I learned magic was at the New York Public Library in Brooklyn where everything began for me. Because as a kid, my mother worked multiple jobs and I would, I would go to school. She would be at work, so I would take the subway back to the apartment, but since she wasn't there, I would go to the library. 
and I would wait for her. And I always carried a deck of cards in my hands. Like everywhere I went, I held cards like it was the most incredible object in the world because it was. You know, it was something that you actually don't normally have as a kid. So I had a deck of cards and I remember this librarian one day said, oh, we have this book of, uh, of card tricks. And she helped me learn a very simple self-working mathematical card trick. And I learned it quickly because it was very easy. And when my mother came to pick me up, I did this to her. And she jumped around like she had seen the most amazing thing ever, <laughs> which she continued to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> what was the book? It was like a, a self-working mathematical card trick book. I don't remember. The book that I remember finding after that that I can recall specifically because it wasn't just a book of tricks. It was called The Secrets of Houdini. You know, at the age of five, when you see a man chained up sideways to the side of a building, straight jacket, looking really scary, you don't forget that. And I started looking through the book and I started seeing all these amazing things that he was doing. And what I liked about what he was doing is you could very easily tell from the pictures that he was doing things that were real. So it wasn't like an illusion or a magic trick, even though he employed that into what he did, but what the guy was doing was clearly real and physical and dangerous. And it was the things that I think are amazing to this day. If, if you could, could meet a magician today, anybody, who might it be? Definitely Houdini. What yeah. would you ask him? I'd ask him what his, his main distractions are. I'd be because he, he really worked. He was a workaholic. And I'd ask him what he wishes he did differently. I'd ask him what his vices are, what his temptations are, what his training schedule is, what he ate. I'd ask him if he wants to learn how to hold his breath much longer. <laughs> I could teach him. <laughs> yeah, he'd be my top choice. I would honestly say David Blaine's the most knowledgeable person in the world on Houdini. Like, he is, like, pretty obsessed. Which you don't even really think about, but it makes sense to study someone who is the best at, at your craft. And when did the, the first David Blaine special come out? Was that the 90s, like 97, 98, it feels? You know, honestly, I don't know because he's sort of always been on the scene for me, just given my age. I remember when I was 19, uh, which would have been, you know, like 2005, I saw... A David Blaine special and he was pretty young it looked pretty new so he must have been around a few years before that but um, I, I'm sure it was in the 90s must have been there are a few on Netflix and it just looks like late 90s early 2000s just the way people just the way people are dressing and it's pretty impressive that he's been able to sustain a career and be so mainstream for 20 plus years and just like Houdini staying in great physical shape the jumping from 25,000 feet or the, the height with the balloons, like I could not do that in the physical shape that I'm in right now. And David's <laughs> significantly older than me. So just studying the body and the breath of just going to those extreme lengths, the same way that Houdini studied German locksmithing. Uh, David Blaine is probably studying human breathing and the breath to control it. So you saw it in the special where yep, exactly. like he could, I could go hold my uh, breath underwater like Casey Neistat did for four or five minutes, but then it takes years of hard work and training to be able to do it for 17 minutes underwater. And I think that that makes it more impressive when you know exactly how it's done to be able to say, 
I, I still couldn't do it. It is almost like a, a feat of superhuman strength at that point. Yeah, I mean that that's and again that's sort of exactly why uh David Blaine Houdini like he's the best modern example because uh yeah, he he very much embraces that like a lot of the things that Houdini was doing, you know, back in the day were were more just sort of physical feats and less less magic trickery or, or it, uh the crossover between actual physical challenge versus magic method, you didn't really know where one ended and the other one began. It's so interesting when you blur the line between actually doing something and pulling off a magic trick. And when you, blur, the more you blur that line, the kind of the more of a superhero you seem like. And uh, that's where those guys both do it. So like, there's no one who does it better because some of it is training and some of it is just lore uh, and, and like them spreading their own myth. Like Houdini was known as the king of cards, you know, and, the only person to call Houdini the king of cards was Houdini. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he would put that on his posters. Houdini, king of cards. And okay, like no one ever said that. He said that. It's it's like, I mean, it's like uh, anybody who's willing to self-proclaim something loud enough and, and tell you that they're the best, you kind of have no choice but to believe it, especially back then if you just saw it on a billboard and like on a big old poster tapestry hanging from the side of the theater you'd be like i guess this guy's the best because you have nowhere to look it up even now it seems like you could go on youtube and just say you're the best and some fraction of people will leave thinking well that guy's the best and it's kind of crazy because nowadays you could fact check it but the amount of people that actually do i don't think is actually very high so the method still holds it for marketing, I think, is just tell people that you're awesome. As long as you can back it up to some degree, it, you don't have to be the best. You can just say you are, and some fraction of people will believe that. No, absolutely. And if you boil it down, the farther away you get, the less you remember, and you just bring it down to one sentence, and you say, oh, yeah, Houdini uh, escaped from underwater uh, in the middle of winter. People just assume that there was ice and all kinds of stuff, and if they hand that to you, just go with it. And similar to David Blaine, it's when you do so many insane things. It's, oh yeah, David Blaine, he held his breath for 20 minutes and he floated up with to 25,000 feet and then jumped out of a bunch of balloons. Yeah, it, it, I remember like back in the day, Houdini tried to escape, I think it was like a beer barrel full of beer. Mm -hmm. And it's one of his like only real public failures. Like he couldn't because I guess he didn't really, they didn't really know well enough that the the beer is going to like seep in through your skin kind of, and you're going to get insanely drunk by sitting in a barrel of beer. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, like, I guess they just didn't know. So he also invented butt chugging is <laughs> pretty, pretty much. <laughs> I get, but, but, you, but you know, like that, with that kind of failure, just sweep it under the rug. Don't even acknowledge it. Carry on. And uh, just keep telling people you're the best and nothing can ever hold you and that you've never failed, even though clearly you had a very public failure. But even then, as you fail, he would build it up to be like, it took enough beer to right. to over-intoxicate and kill 300 military <laughs> men yeah. was what what it took to, to take down to Houdini. And I think that sort of goes into the other thing that we were talking about was as amazing of a magician as he is, he was an even better promoter and marketer. Heck yeah, man. He would like go to like the police stations when he got to a new town and like just cause a ruckus, make them handcuff them, say he could break out of any handcuffs, you know, like uh, like that no cell could hold them. But then he would do it. I, of course he would. But like a lot of times, not a lot of times, but some of the times like they're in on it also. The police station, the town, whatever, they can use the positive press 
like especially if he's approaching a, a company like the beer barrel company or whatever right like mm-hmm. it, it's all about mutually for them sometimes he'd be like hey I'm going to do it this way. He might even let them in backdoor on the method a little bit on what he plans on doing because it's better for everyone if we make a big show and Houdini gets out or whatever does the thing. It's just better all the way around. So sometimes he would do it for real and other times uh, it seems like that that, that uh, he was sort of working with them a little bit, not to fake it. I'll get on the same page for safety purposes. We wouldn't want... Yeah, well, for the sake of marketing, it's better for all of us if this goes well for me. Yeah. You know? And and people are like, oh, and they're sort of getting on board with like, yeah, it is better if this, you know, this is a better show. So, they're going to make certain concessions that they might not make. You know, you know how many people come up to me on a daily basis uh, as a magician and like, hey, so do you have one of those little flaps sewn into your hand or your mouth like Houdini did? Because one of your... <laughs> Does one of your teeth come out? <laughs> I know your teeth come out, so you can hide a key in there. And I'm like, what the hell kind of myth if is I'm this? I'm going to start like putting pouches, turn myself into a marsupial, like like a little kangaroo pouch in my hand. Yeah, it's probably not going to be to just hide a quarter. I might think of something more lucrative I could do with that. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny that even the King of Cards, you got me thinking, and, and the beer, um, the beer barrel escapes. Like Budweiser, they're the king of beers. You're you're an avid beer drinker, Wes. <laughs> if you were to, to, to proclaim a, a beer monarch, a, a beer royalty, it's not going to be Budweiser. It's not the king of beers. I've done a blind taste test, and I couldn't tell the difference between Budweiser and Elephant Piss. I couldn't. I tried. I failed. Really? Uh, it's just not good. Yeah. <laughs> Which says a lot both about the flavor and the carbonation. <laughs> <laughs> but it's believable. That's how bad Budweiser is. And we just lost a sponsor. So if you want to sponsor the podcast, uh, we have an alcohol sponsor opening up now. <laughs> uh, but that was part of it was, was the legend to say, like, to go to the world's biggest brewery and just hype everything up that he could, but also through a lot of challenges. So he would not just take do it once. He was so good at just saying, you know what? I'm going to do the beer barrel challenge. and go to breweries all around the world and escape from that and do that. That is a tour for, for a year or two years. And then just stay on top of that. But then the whole time as well, he went, uh, we're only talking about the magic. We're not talking about like the psychic mediums or his film career right. or uh, like the, he was trying to do stunts on planes, like all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. Like he was escaping from straight jackets on a, a bi-wing plane flying upside down. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, he escaped from the belly of a whale. I mean, he uh, like he <laughs> he's got a whole list of like you know, and I don't even know the story behind that one. I just know that clickbait title, uh, their version of a you know early nineteen hundreds clickbait title. I have no idea what that means, right? I just know the headline, <laughs> and I'm like, there's no way. Like, what do you do? Swim into the ocean and climb into a whale? No, I don't know what it is. But he knew clickbait before anybody knew clickbait. Man, the guy is just like. It turns out that the whale's belly is just the, the name of a pub, and he yeah. somehow, like where yeah. the cops like to drink, and so they put some handcuffs on him, and then all shared a few laughs after. But all of a sudden, now it's because he was so consistent and did this for years. No matter what you say, if you play two truths and a lie, but Houdini, you'd pick all lies, and you would still win. Like it's just everything is so believable. Yeah, I mean, uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I guess that kind of transitions into just so much of it and David Copperfield's private museum. I think this was the last thing that you really did before COVID shut everything down. You were in Vegas and you went to David Copperfield's museum. 
The museum is not open to the public. David spent 20 years building the collection. He gives only researchers and fellow illusionists access. David dedicated an entire room to the world's other most famous magician, Harry Houdini. Well, if Houdini were alive today and were to stand right where you're standing, he'd see his entire life surrounding him. In 1991, David bought half of Houdini's worldly possessions for $2.2 million. The other half is housed in the Library of Congress. The milk can, which is right there, his water torture cell, his first magic wand, his straitjacket and keys that he used to get out of handcuffs. All the things he's known for are right here. For any artist, you have to understand the history of your art. For me, it's not just about magicians. This represents what everybody can relate to. It's about uh, taking people and you know, reminding them that uh, you can do great things no matter what the struggles are. I know he keeps it pretty tight, but for what you can share, what's some of the stuff in the museum about Houdini that maybe just was really interesting or that you wouldn't have, have thought is so memorable that uh, that you can share? Well, like, uh, yeah, that's, that is the, the last thing I did before the world shut down. And, uh, and it was such a lucky experience. Um, you know, I have some mutual friends that are really close with David Copperfield. So getting invited to his private museum is a pretty exclusive honor that uh, I've and I've had a couple chances uh, over the years and I've always sort of missed them, you know, leaving uh, too early or not being around in the right time. But this time, right place, right time. And yeah, I got to go into his museum. Uh, he has an incredible collection from everybody, like every single magic thing that is amazing he has in there. And it is, I could spend a day in the first five feet, literally, and just looking at stuff. And it is just floor after floor and, and you know, like thousands of square feet and uh and not to mention you're walking around with david copperfield right <laughs> the living legend like sh explaining again like we talked about blaine <laughs> david blaine we kind of just glossed over yeah everyone but but again for what like 20 years he had a special touring around the world and before covid he was still selling out his theater twice a night Oh, yeah. Then no one works harder than David Copperfield. Not even Houdini didn't even work as hard as David Copperfield. I, I honestly believe that. This guy did 400 shows a year. Like, what the hell? You're a billionaire. You don't need to do that. Like your retirement age. Yeah. You, oh, yeah. When you have enough money to have your own museum, you don't need to work. You're doing it because you truly love it. I, I have to tell you this story real quick because I was at the recently, I was in Toronto where I live at, and I was at the uh, art gallery here, or whatever, and they had a, a display on a special exhibit with all like these posters and stuff from uh, magicians over time, you know, going like Robert Houdane and Thurston and Keller and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Carter and all these like amazing old school magicians. And uh, it was beautiful displays because that's all they really had back then was like who can hang the biggest, prettiest, colorfulest, coolest poster with the best imagery mm -hmm. that would sell you tickets. Um, but they also had a few like things in there like – Oh, look at this straight jacket from Houdini. And like, this is one of their prize sort of displays near the end of the exhibit of this Houdini straight jacket. And I was looking at it, I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, it, it's like, maybe it's one of his, but I'm like, I, I've seen like the original, the original, you know, like Copperfield owns everything. <laughs> I wow. was like in the museum, right? So he's got like a bunch of old Houdini, like actual handcuffs, a straight jacket, like these old uh, tapestries and, uh, you know, the water torture cell, all uh, all of these things. If it can be bought, David Copperfield's bought it and it's in this museum. And wow, it's it's truly that's pretty cool. 
like the water torture cell that's oh that's cool dude it's, it's so overwhelming you think you're looking at something not real you know what i mean like you think you think you're on set of a movie they're going to film about the history of magic but you forget it's actually real life david copperfield actually owns this and you're actually standing next to it as a magician it's hard to it's hard to describe it but you have some of the, the, the coolest thing even above like seeing like you know this old tattered straight jacket that you're like holy crap you know that kind of thing even above that seeing these massive like sort of tapestry style posters that would have been hung on the sides of the theaters and stuff they're huge and like and then having you know explained like yeah literally this is the only thing they had to advertise so they would like make them as big as they could as colorful as they could and it's so interesting to know that it's a hundred years ago and they were still writing like the copy they're using, you know, like the, like the, it's so concise and it's so like uh, self aggrandizing and boasting, but it worked and it still does work. Like calling yourself the most amazing, the greatest, the king of this, the king of that. It is amazing that it's lessons. We sort of still, still seem to be relearning now. People, People now go, oh, yeah, you, you, some people have to be taught it in a marketing class in business uh, on what to say. And it's like these guys already knew it 100 years ago. This is what you could put on the side of the wall. Well, look at Pendulette too. Yeah. Like I'm a, I'm a big Penn & Teller fan and just Penn's patter, it's you do the, the Chris Voss masterclass or whatever it is. And it's just perfect to say things so concisely. And the stuff, like you said, that you're learning in a marketing class, these guys just figured it out without all that knowledge of just, it, you could take that copy and you could sell a show with that. So like after your show comes out, if you're touring, you could pretty much use the same poster verbatim and it would still sell, which is another item of just legend is just timelessness and, and being able to, to stay classic for so long and so relevant. And this is directly taking a page out of Houdini's book. I started calling myself the funniest magician in Canada. And I mean, do I believe that's true? Yeah, to a point. Obviously, I, you know, like, and I'm like, I know at my best, I'm for sure in the, in, the, in the top handful, but I will get bookers calling me and they will literally say to me, I've heard that you are the funniest magician in Canada. <laughs> You know where they heard that from? From me, from my promo. You know, they read it on my website probably, you know what I mean? And then they come back to me with the same rhetoric that as if they heard it from someone on the street. And I'm like, man, it works. It really does. Yeah, it does. What also helps when you are funny and you, you can back it up. Yeah, but only a little bit. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> you, you, you made people laugh at least once for a quick moment in time. You were the funniest magician in Canada. But... <laughs> I think that's a, a great sort of last question here is if you were to put something in Copperfield's museum, what would you hope from your career ends up, uh, ends up in there? Oh man. Yeah, that's, that's cool. You know, I would really hope something sort of insignificant to look at that had a great story with it, you know? So like I would hope maybe there'd be like a, a beer can or something and they would tell a story of like, of like, Oh yeah, this is Wes Barker's, beer can he used to go on stage at the end of his show and and pull it out of his pants it wasn't really a magic trick it was mostly a gag and just tell this funny story about this guy that that was great at magic but he cared more about seeing people laugh to him that was more important even than trying to fool them and if there was a small weird insignificant thing in his theater in his museum one day and next to it was a plaque that read out a really fun story 
that for me would be the everything right there. That'd be perfect. That's pretty cool. And it, and you know what? It ties back to being the funniest magician in Canada. Like you leave the crowd in, in stitches. <laughs> nobody, nobody would leave his show in a, in not in a better mood than they came in. But it, you just keep building up and, and what that means. And that really is why we're talking about Houdini a hundred years after he passed away and why his legends lived on. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can never get enough. I could, I'll read anything people put in front of me about Houdini um, just because he's so fascinating. The skill and dedication plus the marketing and ability to sort of tell the white lies where they're necessary, create his own myth and lore, which I think is so important and admirable and something that I, I really try and do in my own life. You don't want to lie to people, but like at the end of the day, everyone just wants to hear about something awesome. They don't want to hear about something that was pretty good, you know? So I, I, uh, I'm just such a big fan. I'll never get sick of talking about Houdini. Yeah. And it's just reading his biography. It's just one thing after another. No wonder it's almost like chasing the, the dragon or getting high, whatever analogy you want to use. It's one thing just leads to another. And it's more impressive than the last thing that he did, which he never really went backwards in his career and even when he he did die he didn't die because he got punched in the stomach he died because he didn't want to miss a show he was too stubborn he said ah just refunds uh there's like gonna be two thousand people there i just uh i'll go to the hospital after it is the craziest thing to think that the way he died is also part of the marketing bit and part of the lore like the punch in the stomach he would have died without it yeah his appendix was messed. It was going to rupture at some point. He was going to go to the hospital at some point. He was going to wait too long to go. But it's way better. And it's so Houdini for everyone around him that was close to him to be like, like he died this way because it's, it's such a better soundbite. It's such a better, more glamorous. The real story is like longer and more boring and complicated. And you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. But the yeah, someone punched him and he wasn't ready. And he died. It's like, that's how he would have sold it. You know what I mean? Like, it's perfect. It's you you have to wonder in the back of your head if he knew that his career was starting to be in the second half. And if he got punched and if he was in so much pain. And he just thought, you know, I want to ride this out. Because if this is how I go, it's <laughs> it's not bad. Like I, Maybe. I, I'm, I'm going to end on a high note. And you could almost have, like, picture a Kerber enthusiasm style show of Houdini <laughs> post-retirement. <laughs> where he just goes around being an, an exaggerated version of himself. And, like, which is just cra so crazy to think about for so many reasons. But I think that's a great spot to to wrap up in. Wes, I really appreciate you you coming on the show. Is there anything else about Houdini that, that I should add in? Where can people find you if, if you're talking about Houdini? Uh, I know, obviously, True TV. Uh, you got a podcast. Where, uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, just check me out on YouTube, Wes Barker, and uh, we have a podcast there, and I'm always posting videos every week. My podcast is less informative of this than <laughs> this one. You know, this one, this one's this one got a lot of info. Mine's just uh, more of a good time. You have to dig for the uh, the nuggets of gold, but please come join us. <laughs> we talked about David Blaine. You had him on your podcast. So. That's true. Yeah, we just, we randomly call David Blaine sometimes my podcast because it's good times. <laughs> David in the field, reporting live from the field. It's kind of like Steve Carell back on the, uh, the Daily Show. <laughs> He's a third host. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some of his inputs better than others. But um, yeah, dude, this was an honor. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. It's going to be a good thing you got going here. I love talking about this kind of stuff. We're back to our regularly scheduled e-commerce content next week, where I'm talking to a couple of founders of a different variety, app founders. A few years ago, 
The Shopify App Store wasn't necessarily a business model, but now companies who have built their entire business on Shopify are worth hundreds of millions and maybe even billions of dollars. Next week, I'm joined by Ben Jabawi, the CEO and founder of Privy. We're going to be talking about what it means to be a founder, some of those trials and tribulations we've gone through. And I explain the whole burrito thing. After that, join me and Nick from Shogun for a very special announcement. It's a pretty technical episode, but if you want to do your own magic and predict the future a little bit, we're going to be talking about headless commerce, which is going to be the big trend over the next 12 to 18 months. And we'll start to see a shift to headless commerce through the holidays in 2021. And it's going to be very mainstream in 2022. So make sure you're subscribed if you want to stay ahead of the curve and predict the future yourself. But until then, that bell means it's quitting time. I'm going to go watch a little magic on YouTube and I'll see you next week. Steel switched to Omnisend and immediately saw a lift in revenue. They started automating their welcome series, card abandonment series, and their post-purchase messaging. Just like Baking Steel is the perfect upgrade for your kitchen, Omnisend is the perfect upgrade for your Shopify store's marketing automation. 70,000 customers from home and kitchen brands to consumables and everything in between trust Omnisend. If you're not using a marketing automation platform that connects directly with Shopify, what are you waiting for? Don't leave revenue on the table this BFCM. Delivering Amazon-like speed to customers. That's what TB12 wanted when they went with ShipBob, and that's what they got. In addition to 25% cost savings since switching 3PLs to ShipBob, if the GOAT Tom Brady trusts ShipBob with his company, you should too head to shipbob.com, get a quote, see how much you could be saving while also growing your 